You turn now to Hebrews chapter 12. If you have the Pew Bibles, that is on page 1009. Last week, we were in Hebrews 12, 1 through 4. Uh, I'm actually going to reread that again for us just for some context because I will be uh, recapping a a few things this morning. Uh, So we'll be reading Hebrews 12, 1 through 17 this morning. So our main text is 5 through 17, but again, just recapping verses 1 through 4 a bit. Hebrews 12, 1 through 17, please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. God, as we come to a text that is challenging, perhaps many of us have read this passage before, and maybe we have skimmed past it when we see these words, discipline and holiness. Maybe we don't know what to do with it. Maybe we feel uh, like 
we're not doing enough in our own strength. Maybe we have bad experiences with human authorities in these regards. God, we pray that whatever it is, whatever barriers there might be, God, that you would strip those things away. God, that you would open up our eyes to see you as our good and loving Father who disciplines us for our good, that we may see your concern, your care for us, that you receive us as your sons and daughters. God, may we run to you as we continue to run this race of the Christian life. So God, draw near to us this morning as we come to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So last week we looked at Hebrews 12, 1 through 4. And I kind of framed it in two ways. Uh, we considered our current context as a church. And then I talked about an illustration from uh, the Barkley Marathons. I'm not going to rehash all of that. If you uh, are interested in that, you can go back and listen to last, last week's message, or you could go and watch the documentary about the Barkley Marathons. But this picture of the race of the Christian life, this intensity, this grueling race uh, that we are on. But in terms of our context as a church, where we're at and why I kind of unpacked that, it, we talked about finishing strong. And that's going to be kind of the theme of these, these last four weeks in Hebrews as we go into the summer. Now you see the title of the message this morning is Finish Strong by Living as Sons and Daughters of Holiness. I mentioned that personally for me, I, I only have three Sundays left uh, before my sabbatical, before being gone for 13 weeks. And saying, I don't want to check out, right? I don't want to check out of this last leg of the race before uh, we're gone for a while. I want to finish strong. And as a congregation, let's finish this book of Hebrews strong, right? We've been in this for like the last nine months. It's been, it's been endurance. We've needed endurance, right, to get through this. It's been long. There's been a lot of heavy stuff. So let's finish that strong. Talked about how James has finished strong these last few months as he has done his ordination trials and he's finished seminary and now he's getting prepared to, to get ordained in a couple Sundays. Um, as a church, finishing strong with our community groups and our men's and women's signs before we take a break for the summer. See how that's mirrored and just kind of following the school year a little bit. Chris prayed for, for some of that earlier where you know, people are, are wrapping up school, whether you're a teacher or you have kids in school. Uh, we all have this, some connection to people who are having to finish strong in these next few weeks here. And as we looked at the, the passage last week, the, the emphasis in verses one and two was this active emphasis, this active pursuit of Jesus by putting off our sin and by looking to him. Remember, we talked about throwing off those weights, those things that might bear us down and then getting rid of things we talked about like our, these runners, people in the back then would wear these long robes, right? And I'm not going to, I'm not going to go out and like start sprinting down the street in this thing. Cause I'm either going to step on it and face plant, or it's going to get tangled up between my legs, right? We need to get rid of these things that cling to us, that, that trip us up. We need to throw those things off. And so it was this idea of, of running the Christian life of endurance that we need because we're on this marathon, right? It's not just a hundred meter dash down the street. It's a, it's a marathon. Verse three, we were commanded to consider or to think carefully. Now, this is still an active element, but 
It's more in the realm of believing something and receiving something. We were told to consider him who endured, to consider Jesus so that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Now, this issue of weariness, this really is the underlying concern of our author kind of throughout this letter for his recipients. There was a temptation that they were facing to resort back to reliance upon the Old Testament sacrificial system to say, I don't need, I don't fully need Jesus. Maybe I need a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of the old way of doing things. And he's saying, no, he's saying that the whole point of Hebrews, the whole message is that Jesus is better. He's superior to all those old ways of doing things, all those things that people used to rely on. So we need to understand that we need to believe that and we need to live that out. So as we prepare today to dig into verses 5 through 17, I want us to hear this and receive this, not just as those living in America in 2022 who feel like we're really far removed from that time and that place that the original audience were dealing with these issues, but as those who likewise are subject to similar threats of weariness. We have, might not be the exact same circumstances, but we are subject to weariness in our Christian lives as well. We need this encouragement to endure just as much as they did. Keep running the race. That is the message for us. It's the message for Christians throughout the ages. If you've been around here very long at Livingstone, you know we like to talk about two key words. Those words are identity and calling. If you look at the cover of your worship guide, we have our our vision statement there. It is a community of Christ followers. So that talks about our identity, who we are, right? Who God has made us to be. And then our calling is that we are called to know, love, and serve God and others. Why do we make this distinction? Why do we constantly beat this drum? It's because the answer to the who are we question must always inform the how are we to live question. We must know who we are. We must know our identity so that we can live that out, that we can live our calling. And we especially see that in our text for today. As we continue to think through this idea of endurance in the Christian life, our author gives us a very helpful antidote for weariness. This antidote for weariness is twofold. He addresses identity and calling, and he revolves both of them around this common theme of discipline. So we're going to consider these two areas of discipline, identity and calling, as follows. So if you're taking notes, it's going to be two main sections. The first is fatherly, the fatherly discipline of God, and that's where we're going to be talking about our identity. So the fatherly discipline of God is the first section. The second section then is our spiritual discipline as Christians. So the first section is going to be verses 5 through 11, fatherly discipline of God. Then our spiritual discipline as Christians is verses 12 through 17. And that's where we're going to touch on the idea of calling. So first, let's look at God's fatherly discipline as we consider what it has to say about our identity. Now, our author, starting in verse 5 here, he starts off with a pretty strong question. He says, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as, this could probably be translated a little stronger. It's, he's saying, have you completely forgotten? 
It's like, have you forgotten everything that you have learned as sons? The exhortation, and that's been a big word throughout Hebrews, right? We've talked, there's, there's been a lot of instruction about what is true. And then this exhortation, we're being told to do something, being encouraged, being ex- exhorted to live a certain way. And then look at that last word in that sentence, which is key. It addresses you as sons. Okay, now, obviously, put in our sermon title, Sons and Daughters. This is not excluding you, ladies. You're not off the hook here. You can't say, oh, this is just for the guys. They, so I'm, I can check out. I don't need to listen. Uh, obviously, the quote that we're going to see comes from Proverbs chapter 3, which we read earlier. This is Solomon writing to his own son. So the word son is clearly used there. It's not that he's excluding uh his daughters or, or women in general. Um, so as we see this word sons used throughout, just remember ladies, it includes you as well. So, so he's then going to quote from this uh, pretty well-known passage from Proverbs chapter three, uh, which Donovan just read for us. And, and this quote is going to come from verses 11 through 12. And I love what he says at the end of verse five, that, that this exhortation addresses you. He's saying, this is God's word. Right? This is God's word from the Old Testament, and we're not just taking our Bibles right and going, ripping them in half and saying, well, that Old Testament, that was, that was stuff for back then, which in Hebrews, could, we could get that vibe, right? That like, oh, he's, the author is saying Jesus is better. This whole Old Testament sacrificial system is, is outdated and, and is not useful. Well, let's just throw the Old Testament out, right? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, this is God's word to you, right? This word addresses you as sons. He's saying we need the whole counsel of scripture. We need all of God's word for us today as Christians. So this addresses you as sons. The first part then of this antidote for weariness is embracing the Lord's discipline, as we see in this quote, especially with the reminder that he loves us and he receives us as his sons and daughters, my son, do not regard lightly or do not despise the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now, if you're like me, and I mean, I'm sure most of us in some way, we see this word discipline and it's easy to get hung up on this word, right? You might say, like, I just don't want to think about that or I just want to keep reading and be done with it. Uh, if we're honest, that's how we feel a lot, right? Discipline is not a word that we love. Uh, maybe you've been in your life as a child, you've been the recipient of discipline, or as an adult, you've been the disher out of discipline, and it has not been enjoyable. In Proverbs, where this quote comes from, the, the whole emphasis of Proverbs is wisdom versus folly. It's living a life that's honoring to God by being wise and not being foolish, not walking in the ways of the world. And wisdom sees the value in discipline. Now, whether you're a kid or an adult, whether you've been the recipient or are currently in the stage of being the recipient of discipline, or you're an adult dishing out the discipline, uh, we need to think about what this word means here. This word and concept in the Greek, it goes beyond the idea of just simply punitive measures. And if you read Proverbs, right, you're talking about sparing the rod and spoiling the child. Well, the whole emphasis of discipline in Proverbs is not only on the rod, 
right? It's on this idea of teaching wisdom, Solomon teaching wisdom to his, his son and obviously to his children. The root word here uh, in, in the Greek is the root word for child. And this, this concept of discipline, it carries with it the idea of training and education, especially in terms of shaping the morality of the child. Now, in our church and in our denomination, we also believe in the practice of church discipline. So that is a word that we don't shy away from. It's not something that we try to not talk about. If you're a member of Livingstone Church, you have taken five membership vows. The fifth vow is, do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church, and do you promise to promote its purity and peace? So if you're a member here, you have said yes, that you promise to do that. And we go to great lengths in our membership class to explain what that means, right? It doesn't mean that I show up on your doorstep with a, with a whip and I, if I come to the door and you know, somebody says, hey, so-and-so did, did this, I'm not coming in as the pastor and, and whipping people, right? That's not what church discipline is about. In our book of church order, which is this huge manual of, of how we do things, there's an entire section on church discipline. And we talk about this in our membership class. One of the sections, the first section in the discipline section is called discipline. It's nature, subjects, and ends. Now stick with me here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just walk us through this quickly. And I think this is helpful because this is helping us to kind of understand what this whole idea of spiritual discipline means. Uh, what it means for us corporately, right, as a body of people together who are trying to, to honor the Lord and to live out what it means uh, to live holy lives. So first, the nature of discipline, our book of church order says, discipline is the exercise of authority given to the church by the Lord Jesus Christ to instruct and guide its members and to promote its welfare and purity. Now, the term has two senses. The first one is positive. The second one is a little more negative. In the positive sense, the one referring to the whole government inspection, training, guardianship, and control which the church maintains over its members, its officers, and its courts. Now, second, the more negative one is the other is a restricted and technical sense signifying a judicial process. Okay, so that's the nature of discipline when we talk about church discipline. Now, who are the subjects of discipline. It says all baptized persons being members of the church are subject to its discipline and entitled to the benefits thereof. Okay. There are benefits, right? There are benefits for being under the care, under the watchful care of your elders and of, of our Presbyterian, our denomination. So there are benefits for that. So it's not just discipline. Isn't just this negative, scary thing. Okay. What are the ends then? And this is, I think, really the key here. The exercise of discipline is highly important and necessary. In its proper usage, discipline maintains three things. The glory of God, the purity of his church, and the keeping and reclaiming of disobedient sinners. Discipline is for the purpose of godliness. Therefore, it demands a self-examination under scripture. So glory of God, purity of his church, and their keeping and reclaiming of disobedient sinners. And we are reminded then that we are to examine ourselves under scripture. So we all have a part to play in this process. As members, we are to uphold our vows. And as elders, we are to be faithful to shepherd the flock in the way that God has called us to. 
So when we think about discipline in the church, church discipline is patterned after God's desires for us as his children. And that's clearly seen in this passage. Notice verse 7, in the beginning of verse 7, it says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. This is really important. God is treating us as sons. He's not treating us as, as servants. He's not treating us as if we, we are not important to him or close to him. He's treating us as sons. Then our author begins by, he begins here making these comparisons of God's discipline of us as his children with the discipline of earthly fathers toward their own children. He kind of weaves back and forth here from verses 7 through 11, and notice here some of the truths that we see. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So no discipline means you're an illegitimate child. Verses 9 and 10, then, he's going to make this lesser to greater argument, which he's done several times throughout Hebrews. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more, right? If, so if we submitted to our earthly fathers, shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live, right? Essentially, what he's saying here is our earthly fathers who were sinful just like us right if they disciplined us and they knew what was good for us and we listened to them why would we not submit to god who is holy and perfect and cares for us as his sons and daughters verse, verse 10 kind of unpacks that they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness i love this here there's this purpose statement god wants us to be like him because of our sin and because of our childlike need for correction, we cannot be holy as God is holy without his discipline. We need his fatherly correction and discipline in our lives that we might share in his holiness. And then verse 11 here, I think, is really key. It serves as a sort of bridge between these two sections. It says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We love talking about the already and the not yet or the now and not yet a lot around here. Um, we see that here for the moment, the now, right? The, the here and now, this discipline seems painful. It doesn't seem pleasant. But later, right, there's a, there's a longer view in mind. There's an endurance element, a looking forward patiently to what God has for us. Later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, you might have to kind of rack your brain and go back to remember this if you were here, but we talked about this back in chapter five. We talked about this word trained. The word trained in the Greek is the word gumnazo. What word in English do we get from gumnazo? Gymnasium, right? This word for training here is where we get the word gymnasium. So after our author here affectionately told his audience in, in chapter five, back in chapter five, our author had affectionately told his audience that they had become dull of hearing and that they needed milk and not solid food. Okay, this was not a compliment. He said, you guys need to open your ears, you need to listen, you need to grow up. 
He said, solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained. Okay, same word here. Their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So there's this training, this constant practice in the Christian life to be able to distinguish what from what is good from what is evil. And that is one of the ways that we grow in the Christian life. So in other words, there is a need to grow up. And this growth, again, this growth in the Christian life cannot happen apart from discipline. As we see here, it is both God's loving discipline of us as his children, and then our discipline in the gymnasium of the Christian life. But before we move on uh, to our to our part in discipline, to the second part, I want us to pause and want us to ask ourselves, how are we doing at recognizing and embracing God's love for us as a father who doesn't just leave us to figure out life on our own, but who cares deeply about us, who cares about our holiness? Are we recognizing and embracing that? Are we seeking to reflect his goodness and his beauty and his truth to the world around us. We saw in our affirmation of faith in Westminster 5.5, the purpose is that we would be humbled, that we'd be raised to a more close and constant dependence upon the Lord, and that we would be made more watchful against all future occasions of sin. Now, maybe you have a hard time with this topic because you had an earthly father who disciplined you in a way that was not for your good. Maybe your father was overly harsh, or maybe you had a father who was completely absent and didn't discipline you at all. I don't want to minimize the reality of the pain that some of us have experienced and how that might shape our view of God as our heavenly father. But friends, we must not define who God is or approach him based on negative earthly experiences with our own fathers. Perhaps you need to begin by forgiving your earthly father for how he sinned against you in order that you might draw near to your heavenly father who loves you and receives you, not because of your performance, which may have very well been your experience, but because you are his redeemed child whose sins have been covered by the blood of his own precious son. We must get this identity piece right before we can move on to consider our calling. So let me ask it in a different way. Do we really understand who we are in Christ? Do we understand our identity in Christ? If you have trusted in Jesus alone for your salvation, then you are a beloved child of God. No ifs, ands, or buts. And the good news is that God does not want you to stay immature in your faith. His desire for you is that you would move on from milk to solid food. That you would hit the weights, right? That you would train in the gymnasium of life. That you would grow up, that you would mature. And that's the imagery that we see in verses 12 through 17 as we consider our spiritual discipline as Christians, as it relates to our calling. And there's very much a corporate emphasis here in these verses. If we think of the gymnasium 
work is we, if we think of this in terms of bodybuilding, I think this makes sense. Bodybuilding or, or weightlifting for sports. If you've ever done any weight training at the gym, you know that it is way more effective to go to the gym and to lift with someone else. Uh, for one, just safety wise, it's not smart to go and be like bench pressing a whole bunch of weight by yourself. You could drop it on your neck and it would be lights out. Uh, also, the motivation to spur one another on. Uh, again, if you've ever done this, you know this. For me, when I was in high school, I, I played different sports, especially for football. We did a lot, a lot of weightlifting as a team. And just the, you know, the, the motivation for a bunch of teenage guys being in the gym, being stinky together, trying to lift weights so you can go out on the field and do battle together. Like there is a tremendous amount of, of encouragement and motivation that comes in that corporate setting. After I remember after uh, after college, I think Lindsay and I had uh, moved, maybe moved back from our first year in China. And I remember like going to the YMCA in lacrosse and just like, okay, it's been like several years and I'm like by myself and I'm trying to bench press. I'm like, this is horrible. Like, I'm not motivated to do this at all. I'm not, I don't have anything. I'm like, I'm not going to be playing sports or, you know, so it's just that reality that this type of training is not to be done by yourself. So that's the picture of what's going on here. There's this corporate emphasis. And I think it's similar to what we saw last week about running the race together, right? We're, we're running alongside each other in this race of life. We're spurring one another on in the same way. We're to be in the gym together, to be hitting the weights together, so to speak. So look with me then at verse, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. This is what spurring each other on and encouraging each other in the race and in the gym looks like. We cannot individually produce the endurance needed to overcome the inevitable weariness that we will face on this journey of life. We need one another. In this imagery here that we see in verse 13, make straight paths for your feet. This is very important. We saw it in our reading from Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Notice how our paths are made straight. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Who makes our paths straight? He does, right? God does. And then in the next chapter, Solomon gives his son more sound advice about walking in the ways of wisdom. Proverbs, Proverbs 4, 26 and 27 says, ponder, or we can translate that, make level the path of your feet. Then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. I think these verses really highlight the reality that God is ultimately the one who must make our paths straight, but that we also have responsibility to walk in his ways and to follow those straight paths. We are not passively going to progress in the Christian life if we do not walk on that straight path in the way that we have been called to. That seems pretty evident by what we see in these last four verses. Beginning in verse 14, we see this two-sided coin of what we are to strive for. Verse 14. 
Strive for peace with those who like you and treat you respectfully. No. Strive for peace with those who agree with you on every theological and political point. No. Strive for peace with everyone. Ouch. Second side of the coin. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Ouch again, right? You're like, get this coin away from me. It is no coincidence that Jesus ties together peace and holiness in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Actually in two different places in chapter 5. First in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, i.e. people who are holy, right? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Kind of sounds like strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord, right? Jesus is not teaching works righteousness here either. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. See the connection again with Hebrews 12. There's this connection on us being sons of God. The peacemakers will be called sons of God. Strive for peace with everyone. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Being a peacemaker and striving for peace with everyone is not easy, right? It is not easy at all. We may be, as Jesus says, we may be reviled and persecuted for our pursuit of peace. But great is our reward in heaven. We will see God. At the end of Matthew 5, Jesus teaches about loving our enemies. Listen to what he says here. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Notice again this connection with our sonship and how we're called to live. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And then this next sentence, I think, might be one of the hardest things that Jesus ever said. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Strive for peace with everyone, right? Don't just love those who love you. That's easy. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, only those who agree with you on theological or political things, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And then he says another shocking statement. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. The word Jesus uses for perfect here is the word that's used throughout Hebrews. Talking about Jesus' perfection, talking about our call to 
to pursue perfection. It's not the same word for holiness, but it's the same idea, right? Be like God. And it's hard work. God has to start it, right, by setting us on the straight path, but then we have to walk on that path. It carries with it the idea of striving positively towards a goal, the goal of sanctification, of being more like Jesus. But it also then has this negative element of things to avoid. That's what verses 15 through 17 teach us. We must watch out for these types of things in our midst. See to it, verse 15, that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So this is, this is kind of, again, going back to this church discipline idea. This is this protection of one another, is making sure these things do not spring up in the congregation, that we, that we meet them head on, that we kill sin before it kills us, as John Owen famously said. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy, unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. You know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance for repentance, so he sought it with tears. I'm not really going to take time to dive into this whole thing with Esau here, but if you think about what we just saw, think about Hebrews chapter 11, right? The hall of faith. It's been this whole chapter of person after person in the Old Testament, despite their sin, right? Despite their, their weaknesses and their insufficiencies, they were people who lived by faith, Abraham, Moses, and, and many others who trusted God in, in spite of very hard circumstances. Now we come here to Esau. Esau is the anti-chapter 11, right? He's the opposite of example. If we were to, to model our lives in, in any way after those people in chapter 11, we are not to model our lives after Esau. We are not to be like him. He did not trust the Lord. He did not pursue holiness. It says that he was unholy. So how are we doing, friends? How are we doing with this whole holiness thing? I want to let my favorite dead author probe us a little deeper with this question. If you're on our email list this week, I sent out a copy of chapter three from J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness. Uh, Chapter three of holiness is titled holiness. Uh, So originally this was a bunch of uh, different things that he had written that were all kind of compiled together. So uh, if you haven't yet had a chance to read it, or if, if you're not on our email list and you would like a copy, I could, I could send it to you. But if you haven't had a chance yet, I hope you will do so. It's very encouraging. I want you to notice how he addresses both our need to strive for holiness, to make level paths for our feet And again, the reality that God must do it, that we can't ultimately make ourselves holy. He says, let me ask everyone who may read these pages, are you holy? Listen, I pray you to the question I put to you this day. Do you know anything of the holiness of which I have been speaking? I do not ask whether you attend your church regularly whether you have been baptized and received the Lord's Supper, whether you have the name of Christian, I ask something more than all this. Are you holy or are you not? I do not ask whether you approve of holiness in others, whether you like to read the lives of holy people and to talk of holy things and to have on your table holy books, whether you mean to be holy and hope you will be holy someday. 
I ask something further. Are you yourself holy this very day or are you not? And why do I ask so straightly and press the question so strongly? I do it because the scripture says, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. It is written. It is not my fancy. It is the Bible, not my private opinion. It is the word of God, not man. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Alas, what searching, sifting words are these? What thoughts come across my mind as I write them down? I look at the world and see the greater part of it lying in wickedness. I look at professing Christians and see the vast majority having nothing of Christianity but the name. I turn to the Bible and I hear the Spirit saying, Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Surely it is a text that ought to make us consider our ways and search our hearts. Surely it should raise within us solemn thoughts and send us to prayer. You may try to put me off by saying you feel much and think much about these things, far more than many suppose. I answer, this is not the point. The poor lost souls in hell do as much as this. The great question is not what you think and what you feel, but what you do. You may say it was never meant that all Christians should be holy, and that holiness such as I have described is only for great saints and people of uncommon gifts. I answer, I cannot see that in scripture. I read that every man who hath hope in Christ purifieth himself. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. You may say it is impossible to be so holy and to do our duty in this life at the same time. The thing cannot be done. I answer, you are mistaken. It can be done. With Christ on your side, nothing is impossible. You may say, if I were so holy, I would be unlike other people. I answer, I know it well. It is just what you ought to be. Christ's true servants always were unlike the world around them, a separate nation, a peculiar people. And you must be so too, if you would be saved. He goes on. Would you be holy? Would you become a new creature? Then you must begin with Christ. You will do just nothing at all and make no progress till you feel your sin and weakness and flee to him. He is the root and the beginning of all holiness. And the way to be holy is to come to him by faith and be joined to him. Christ is not wisdom and righteousness only to his people, but sanctification also. Men sometimes try to make themselves holy, first of all, and sad work they make of it. They toil and labor and turn over new leaves and make many changes, and yet they run in vain and labor in vain, and little wonder, for they are beginning at the wrong end. Do you want to attain holiness? Do you feel this day a real hearty desire to be holy? Would you be a partaker in the divine nature? Then go to Christ. Wait for nothing. Wait for nobody. Linger not. Think not to make yourself ready. Go and say to him in the words of that beautiful hymn, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked flee to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. 
what great words as we think about coming and preparing our hearts to come to this table this morning. Nothing in my hand I bring. You don't walk down here and walk up to me and say, here's my list of good works for the week, pastor. Can I please take communion, right? You bring nothing in your own hands. You bring nothing that you have done. All you bring is the righteousness of Christ on your account. Simply to thy cross, I cling. Naked flee to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. That is how we can come to this table. As you examine your life, as you think about your holiness or your lack of holiness, the reminder is that it's not because of, of what you've done. It's not because of anything that you can provide that you're worthy to come to this table. None of us are worthy to come to this table on our own because of anything we've done. This table is open to us because of what Jesus has done for us. So here at Living Stone, we, we don't practice a closed community. Don't, you don't have to be a member of Living Stone Church. You don't have to be a Presbyterian. You don't have to agree with every jot and tittle of our theology. If you have trusted in Christ as your Savior, if you are someone who is, has been baptized and is in good standing in a gospel-preaching church, then this table is open to you.